Hello and welcome along to this special pilot episode of the Rules of the Game podcast with Leaders Chair Jimmy Worrell. My name is James Emmett, I'm the Editor-at-Large at Leaders, and with me to explain just what the heck this is all about is Leaders Founder and Chair Jimmy Worrell. Jimmy, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you too, James. The Rules of the Game, Jimmy. Um, tell us what we need to know before we get stuck in. Well, I don't want to give everything away, but I've been thinking about networking for a very long time. And certainly since the since the setup leaders 12 years ago, it's really been my responsibility to understand networking and, and help others connect with each other. So uh, the last year, I've really thought about it in a bit more detail and, and, and reflected on the fact that a lot of people come up to me and say, A, I must have a, a great black book in sport. And, and I kind of say to them, well, look, it's probably not the the black book that you imagine it to be. It's not um, a huge volume with names and addresses and emails and phone numbers in. It's actually a, it's a more living and breathing black book which sits in my back pocket and, uh, and I use on a regular, regular basis. And also a lot of people say, look, they don't really like networking. Um, they find it insincere. Um, and I say to them, look, that's probably because you don't understand it because there's nothing more authentic than building relationships, especially in an industry that you love. And you can make a huge difference when you do that. And when you do that, uh, you don't just make a difference to other people. You make a huge difference to your own success, um, your own, um, you know, your own career, your job satisfaction, uh, longevity of your career. And generally how you feel in the industry and, and that's why i feel really passionate about it and i thought i'd try and put all those thoughts together uh, to try and create a, a piece which hopefully will appeal to the industry and add some value so this is a pilot of a proposed um, series identifying and interrogating the key skills um, that the best leaders from across sport and indeed any industry seem to excel at we're calling it the rules of the game as you say Uh, This episode is focused on networking, what it is, why it's important, and crucially, um, how to do it well. Um, You and I have been working on this for some time now, Jimmy. It's involved a lot of research, a lot of conversations. Um, Who have you spoken to for this piece? Well, I've spoken to a lot of people, actually. um, And if you you spread it over the 12 years, there's hundreds of people. Um, But actually, in the last... uh, sort of six months, I've sort of tried to condense it into a number of individuals who I thought, well, you know what, they do networking so well. They're brilliant at connecting with people. And it's like they do it unconsciously, but actually they're not. They're doing it very consciously and they're working at it every single day of the working life. And David Dean is was one name that sp- sprang to mind immediately. Um, someone who's probably one call away from anybody in the world of football. And that's some claim to fame in some respects. So uh, Scott O'Neill, a very assured and accomplished and hugely uh, dynamic and respected figure in American sport, someone who just you feel easy with and you want to connect with. And he has a special skill in that regard. And then we've got Kathy Carter, who's a really senior figure in American sport on the soccer side and built some great relationships, actually through her determination and hard work and trust that she developed with core group of people and building relationships across the industry with women in a similar position to her. Uh, and, and then she branched out out of soccer into Olympic sport. It's very interesting to see how that has played out for her and, and how she's um, 
building relationships in a, in a new um, a new era and a new space. And finally, Tracy Crouch, who used to be sports minister uh, in the UK, and part of her role actually was to build relationships across the political and sporting spectrum with people who had different agendas. And, you know, that's not easy to do, uh, especially when there are people who don't agree on many different things. And so she had to try and pull opinion together, pull connections together and make things happen from a political standpoint. And I thought that was quite interesting as well. Yes, indeed. Um, let us know what you think about the episode, about networking. Tell us your your top tip or or secret trick for how to do it well or about what leadership skill you'd like us to unpack in future episodes. Uh, james.worrell at leadersinsport.com or james.emmett at leadersinsport.com. And now, without further ado, here is the Rules of the Game, the networking edition. There's a boy I know born in Liverpool five decades ago. A scraggy kid from a scraggy house in a scraggy neighbourhood. He won't mind me saying he was average in every way. Intelligence, talent, aspirations... And he was very, very average at sport. This continued for most of his childhood and into his working life until one day in 1994, he turned on the radio of his yellow Volkswagen Golf GTI to hear a story on the business of sport. And he decided there and then, that's what he wanted to do, to give up selling Prozac in the East End of London and follow a different career. My name is Jimmy Worrell, and I was that scraggy kid with an average IQ. I was the one who never made it as a footballer and used my ingrown toenail to avoid playing rugby. I was the one who switched on the radio, and 25 years later, I'm the founder of Leaders and at the centre of what I believe is the most senior global network in sport today. How did that happen? Well, I've had some time to think about that, and whilst I love people, and sport, they say, is a people business, there's more to it than that. You see, I love relationships. And in sport, relationships matter more than anything else. So in this podcast, I'm going to take a closer look at the inner workings of networks in sport, at real-life people and real-life stories in my network. And in doing so, we'll look at your network, how to build it, how to manage it, and how to take it into the Champions League. And this is where my guests come in. I've spent the last six months talking to leaders in sport with a network to match, to uncover the truths about brilliant networking. And through their brilliant stories, my own experience, and a lot of research along the way, I've created some essential rules which will help you master the art of networking in sport. And if you stick with me for the next hour or so, I'll share them all with you. Stick your neck out. Rule number one is get noticed, take a risk, volunteer for a project, make a presentation, put your hand up, stick your neck out. David Dean was one of the most powerful men in world football at a pivotal time in its commercial development. The Arsenal director was arguably the driving force behind the creation of the Premier League and he remained a power broker in European sport 
long after he sold his Arsenal shares in 2007. But it wasn't always so for David. His story is that of an Arsenal fan, first and foremost, a sugar trader with no formal connection to the club he loved until he manoeuvred himself onto the board in 1983 through an approach that got him noticed. So I stuck my neck out and wrote a handwritten letter to the board saying I'd like to subscribe for those unissued shares. And then actually I did really stuck my neck out. I sent them a blank check because I thought that would focus their minds. You know, it wouldn't just, my letter wouldn't just go in the inbox. They would think, hold on, this guy could be serious. I knew they weren't going to run away with my money. And then a few weeks later or so, I got a letter saying, but I'd like to come to an interview. And then, as, as you know, it's what I always preach to, to the youngsters in schools, that when you go for an interview, you've got to look the part, you've got to be dressed well enough, you've got to eye-to-eye contact, firm handshake. Well, no, you can't do that these days, but normally a firm handshake and always a, a big smile. And um, anyway, I went to the interview and then they invited me onto the board and then became vice chairman. And I guess the rest is history. Scott O'Neill, CEO of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, of the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils, is one of the most assured leaders in North American sport. But it wasn't just given to him either. He worked hard in the early days and again stuck his neck out when it mattered. My three brothers are each running companies and my sister will be starting one shortly. She just left uh, working for my other brother. So it's a family of entrepreneurs. So I am I'm sadly the only sellout. But we all worked hard all the time. I mean, I my, my first job when I was 14, digging pools and worked a series of labor jobs. You know, I installed uh, vending machines for Pepsi one summer and uh, landscaping, construction. I worked at a farmer's market from 3 a.m. till 12 noon, another, another fine job. I liked working. I always liked working. I was always passionate about work. But when I got to college, I got an internship with a company called Advantage International, which is now Octagon. It was one of the largest sports marketing companies in the world. And my dad helped me get a lead for an interview and I got the job. And I walked in and I almost couldn't believe it. What I couldn't believe was that people were happy and they were passionate and they were kind of young and good looking and energetic. And Friday wasn't the best day of the week because your shift ended or work was over. This was a 24-7 passion point for the people that worked there. And that's when the light bulb went on for me. I worked for a guy named Bruce Schilling, who's a longtime Nike executive. Bob Heisner is a longtime uh, sales executive in the business. Harlan Stone is another name that that people in the in U.S. in the sports market will know. And they had a really big influence on me and how I saw the world. And I, I literally, it was like a big light bulb. And I said, okay, that's what I want to do. I remember, you know, presenting a proposal to the managing directors there to host a, a Georgetown versus Maryland alumni basketball game at the Washington Tennis Center, an outdoor tennis venue. And, and you just think about that now, like an intern at 20 years old, writing a proposal and actually presenting it to the MDs of a firm. It's like, you know, so they gave me a platform, they gave me confidence, they, uh, and they helped me through it. And so that, that type of experience is, is incredible. For Kathy Carter, CEO of the LA 2028 Olympics commercial arm, that stick your neck out moment came a little later in her career when after a highly successful 14-year career with Soccer United Marketing and the MLS, she put her name on the ballot to be the next U.S. Soccer Federation president in 2017. Honestly, it was probably the, the craziest 
uh, experience that I've ever had professionally, COVID notwithstanding. It was, uh, well, first of all, you go from representing a product to being the product, uh, and that makes it inherently much more personal. And I think the second thing was when you are the product, when people are saying things that are true or untrue, they're directed at you. And in today's environment of social media, where people get to say whatever they want to say in whatever form that they want to, it can be pretty brutal. Uh, So that was an experience, certainly. And I I think that what I'm proud of, uh, having gone through the experiences, the people that I was able to bring together in a very short period of time to help um, me prepare and ultimately run, and the people that came out of the woodwork to support me was, quite frankly, really amazing and overwhelming, in fact. Even though Kathy was unsuccessful, sticking her neck out taught her more about herself and her impact on others than she could have imagined. Former UK Sports Minister Tracy Crouch knows a thing or two about winning people's votes, about bringing people round to her point of view. Tracy was handpicked for her role building stakeholder relationships across sport and implementing sometimes unpopular government policy by the Prime Minister David Cameron. But she got her start simply by asking for it. I grew up in, in Hyde in Kent um, and I went to school in Folkestone and our MP was Michael Howard. And Michael did what lots of MPs do, which is to go into schools and talk to students. And he came into my school. I clearly indicated an interest, not that I really remember being sort of kind of geekily interested in politics, but I clearly indicated an interest and he asked if I wanted to do some work experience and I did. And that was fantastic. It was really interesting week. He was Home Secretary still at the time. I kind of opened my eyes up a bit more to politics, which is something that was never discussed at home. My family are very non-political and also, as it happens, not very interested in sport. Um, so I kind of broken a mould twice in, in family. And then I went off to university and a, another MP came to talk to some of the students. And I was in my final term at, at um, university. And I, I literally said, uh, something along the lines of, can I have a job? And what I didn't know was that morning his researcher had resigned and so he gave me a job. My sticky neck out moment? Well, there are a few, but I wouldn't be talking to you right now if I hadn't driven home in my yellow Volkswagen Golf after listening to that radio programme and phoning every FIFA football agent I could find until one picked up and invited me to his home the very next day. And even though I realised the football agency world was not for me, it spurred me to jump back in my car, drive 200 miles to Liverpool to doorstep Dr. Rogan Taylor and personally hand him my application for the world's first MBA on the football industry that he had just started. That journey was another stick-your-neck-out moment, but worth it. Not least because Rogan has become one of my closest friends And it was also when I first met David Dean and many other movers and shakers in sport. Become a broker of knowledge. Rule number two, focus on learning. Build your knowledge, become an expert, and then become a broker of knowledge. People say it's not what you know, it's who you know. But if you're the expert, you're much more likely to meet those interesting people. As Professor Adam Grant The esteemed organisational psychologist says, who you know tomorrow depends on what you know today. 
Take a leaf out of the late NBA commissioner David Stern's book, as recounted by Scott O'Neill. I always noticed, you know, this is this is kind of pre-heavy digital world, but he would walk on the plane with six, seven inches of, of articles to read. And they weren't sports articles, and they were some business articles, but it was life sciences, and it was tech, and it was geopolitical, and it was real estate, and it was telecom and media. And you start thinking about the world and business and how much it collides. And, and when Magic Johnson contracted HIV, David Stern knew more than the average Joe and helped transform how the world saw people with AIDS and HIV. And that's not an accident. You know, it's like the NBA had a, an office in Hong Kong 35 years ago because of David Stern and he had that kind of vision. And that's not an accident. Sports entertainment's become a big business. You know, it's different when I got in this business in the early 90s and a team is selling for $13 million. And now they're selling for over $2 billion in the NBA. And so they're becoming real big businesses. And, you know, we, these leaders of these businesses, have to know a little bit more than how to sell a ticket. And the only way I'm going to learn is by, you know, asking questions and being around really smart people and hopefully adding value to them. I, I first off want to learn more. And so I, I think that the step that I, I think I could have done a lot better when I was younger in my career is just do the work. You know, I, I say that all the time at HBSC. It's like, do the work, do the work. And so, you know, and, and a lot of time when you're young, you want to skip steps. And unfortunately, like there are no steps that you can skip. It's like, you have to learn, you have to do research, you have to study, you have to understand the category, you have to understand the company. If it's a public company, there's so much information available. So you can sound educated. And then when you're when you're in there, and you ask more questions. And you start to learn about in, in my experience, like what matters. And sometimes, you know, they might be launching a product and other times they might be investing in a new market. Other times they want to impress Wall Street. And other times they want to, you know, drive community and social change, you know, and it depends on what they want to do. But unless you have the baseline of knowledge and then ask the right questions, you don't, you don't stand a prayer anyway. You know, from the relationship standpoint, that comes over time. I don't think you can like fake relationships. I just don't. And I, and I don't think you can snap your fingers and, and be a BFF. I think you have to invest and you have to prove value and prove worth. Understanding somebody's pain points, understanding somebody's goals and dreams, understanding where the company is heading, the strategy, and understanding the, the macro environment will help you have conversations because at these levels of those types of deals you're talking about, they're made at the highest levels. It's humbling to be in that room. When you're in that room, you better know what the heck you're talking about. When David Dean joined Arsenal in 1983, the club's turnover was 1.5 million, the price of one reserve team player in today's money. And although David was a broker of sugar, he was also a broker of sports marketing knowledge from his many trips to the US where he saw for himself the maturity of the American sports industry. He wanted to build Arsenal and English football into global brands and his commercial acumen helped convince the board of his credentials. I made it a point, not, not particularly consciously, but casually to get to know each, each one of them, their wives, their children, wherever it was, to make it more of a family because it was called the Bank of England Club sort of thing. It was made up of, you know, bankers, insurance brokers, stockbrokers. And all of a sudden I came in from the outside and um, I wanted to shake the tree a bit. 
I sort of analysed where the how the club could develop. I was very conscious to the fact that football was very much in its infancy and it, it didn't have the maturity or particularly of American football. And that, that helped me a lot, I think, when I went to the States, seeing how American football marketed itself. Now, I saw firsthand how sports minister Tracy Crouch used a trip to the Super Bowl to acquire more information and knowledge on sports and politics when we met for the very first time in a freezing Minnesota in 2018. Top of her agenda at the time was a potential London-based NFL franchise. NFL's really popular across Europe, and we've seen it with the games that come over, uh, how many people travel from quite far away across the whole of Europe to come and watch an American football game. So I think it'd be really popular. I think it would be great for the sport. So there were lots of other things that I was there for. I also had some really interesting meetings with politicians in Minnesota as well. You know, it was sort of kind of we're in a very different new global order. And so there was a bit of some kind of trade politics to be done as, as well. But I love American football. So, you know, don't get me wrong. That was all there. And I was I, I can justify my trip from a political perspective. But I really enjoyed the game as well. Even if I haven't always realised it. I've always been a broker of knowledge myself, from the time when I was a front hall porter at the infamous Adelphi Hotel in my hometown of Liverpool, where guests came to me for the best football and theatre tickets, or travelling the US as part of my MBA to hoover up all the best ideas on selling out stadiums, even to setting up leaders where I made more calls to more people than any other time in my life. I always say to our team now, don't rely on sports business news for your knowledge, talk to people and become a broker of knowledge. There are some very simple things you can do to help build your network. They just require a little bit of practice, but they make you feel good, they make others feel good, and they help build rapport. These include eye contact. It's so important. Ever had someone look over your shoulder at who they plan to meet next? It doesn't feel good, does it? Don't do it. Look straight at them. Give them your full attention for that brief time you're together. Remember names. Say it three times within the first 30 seconds and it will stay in your head a lot longer. Smile. It's infectious. It makes you feel good and everyone else around you. So why not? Ask questions and make sure they're the right ones. Ask about challenges or passions rather than what you do or where you come from. Listen. And I mean really listen. Not just hear the words, but listen for the hidden meaning. Say thank you. Gratitude is everything when it comes to networking. And try delaying it so you can report why you're saying it. Even if it's months or years later, it has much more impact. Keep your palms up. Every great networker I meet is a half full person rather than a half empty one. If at most are so open, they're near the brim. But there are other tricks that don't require work on you, but more on the things you do. Here's part one of my definitive 10-point guide. One, send a text. This is a great one when you get caught up in the day job. It forces you to stop, to breathe, to think of someone else. Maybe it's someone you love or care for. Maybe it's someone you knew you should have tried harder with. It's a brilliant way to reconnect with someone you may have lost touch with. Tell them why they matter. In fact, Let's pause right now. Go to the bottom of your WhatsApp or text message folder and send a message out the blue to someone you haven't been in touch with for a while. If you do it every day, 
or every week, before you know it, you'll be super connected. Two, don't collect business cards, collect stories. I love this one because I used to hoard them. I used to stress about losing them, worry about keeping them somewhere safe and putting them in order. Not now, because one of the best tips out there is collect stories and memories rather than cards. How do you do that? Well, that does link back to asking the right questions and also forward to number three, make notes. Unless you have a photographic memory, write things down. It used to be a pocket-sized notebook for me. It's now my phone. And it's the same for David Dean. Okay, I'll give you something that I, I still do today. When I meet people, obviously not at the time I meet them, but I will ask you during the conversation, you may mention your wife's name, you may mention how many children you've got. When I go back, I will actually put that in a notation on my phone. So next time I'll speak to you, I'll ask how your wife is, how your children are. It's personal. You will remember the fact that I've gone to the trouble of knowing about you as a person. And it's totally fine to do it in the middle of a conversation. If someone is giving you a nugget, get your phone out and explain what you're doing. They'll feel valued rather than offended because you're showing you value their knowledge. We're only at number three, so there's seven more to come. But let's get back to business on the big rules for networking. Go deeper. Rule number three is about identifying shared interests, finding common ground, or better still, a purpose you share. Numerous studies back this up. Long-lasting relationships are developed when the stakes are high, you rely on others and the purpose is aligned. Better still if the group is diverse. This happened with spectacular effect for Arsenal in the 2003-2004 Premier League season. They finished the season unbeaten, a feat never before achieved. But that team of players went through ups and downs in the years before they hit that winning streak. And that brought them closer together. That cemented the bond that still remains today. I'm still in touch with all those guys that I signed. Every one of them. Because we had something very special together. We had a bonding. And, you know, when I brought them up, when I think of, give an example, Gilberto Silva, who was in Atletico Mineiro in Belo Horizonte. And Arsene, Arsene's wonderful because, you know, sometimes he can take some time about deciding on a player. And then when he makes his decision, he wants him the following day. So it was always left to me. He said, uh, you know, I think uh, Gilberto Silva may be interesting. So I said, are you serious? He said, yes, can we get him? I said, well, let's see how we go. Immediately took the next plane out to Belo Horizonte in Brazil. And the president there wouldn't engage with me. I camped on his doorstep. I nearly slept outside his house for about three days and eventually wore him down until we had a conversation. And then literally, eventually, almost handcuffed Gilberto and delivered him to Arsene at the training ground in Austria. It was pre-season at the time. And believe it or not, for this day on, well, I've still got a great relationship on a daily basis with Gilberto. And he's not a small boy. He played 98 times for Brazil. A wonderful guy, you know, the same with Edu and the same with Jens Lehmann and Sol Campbell and all those, you know, Thierry and Dennis, Robert Perez, Freddie. It's what you put in in life. You know, if you do your homework, if you put your, your time and effort into it, you've got a chance of getting something else at, at the end of the day. And I, and I think when I, when I look back and I particularly think of those invincibles, we were a family. You know, that those boys are very special. If you put time and effort in, you've got a chance of getting something out. But the starting point is being curious and not being desperate to make that sell. 
I consider myself to be a fairly gregarious person. I enjoy meeting people. I like meeting people, I like to know about them. And I think people often make this mistake when when they start to engage in a conversation. And I always, I start by thinking, you know, I know all about myself. There's nothing more I can know about myself, but I don't know enough about you. So if I'm talking to you, I would make sure that I'm asking you a question. I, I want to know more about you and your life and what makes you tick. And also remembering people's names and faces, that's so important. It's a tip I always give youngsters. I said, you know, when you meet people, remember their names. In America, they've got a great way. They always repeat your name. So it's uh, you, you'd introduce yourself to me and say, hi, Jimmy Worrell. I say, Jimmy, uh, please to meet you, Jimmy. I may repeat it twice or three times. So it resonates and it's in my brain forever. So next time I see you, which could be in six months time, I'd say, hi, Jimmy, how are you? And automatically that is a bonding in itself that I've remembered your name. Right. And you say, he's taken the trouble. He's remembered me. So, you know, just simple things like that is so important. Kathy Carter sings from the same hymn sheet here. I, I would say it's about finding commonality. So finding something that you can connect on. You know, I've created great relationships when or really kept touch with people when the times are bad. So if you think about people as people and not just about what they can do for you, that to me is when there's it's authentic. Like you can feel when somebody is like, I'm going to try to create a relationship with you because of what you can do for me. To me, it's actually you create better relationships when you walk in and say, what can I do for you? I remember in the early days of Leaders, we held a retreat in La Manga, Spain for about 100 top executives in sport. We flew them in, put them up, and for two days they networked over breakfast on the sports field and in the bar. It was unscripted, spontaneous and natural. And no matter who won the golf or the quiz or who got the wooden spoon for being the worst singer at the karaoke... Everyone developed a bond, really found at a cocktail reception. People still talk about it today, and lifelong friends were made from it. So the best networking happens when you feel connected, not just via LinkedIn, not just over a coffee, but because of a shared experience. As famed author Maya Angelou once said, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Now, Organising a physical retreat is not something you can do every day or any day at the moment. So what other ways can you keep in touch and go deeper? Let's look at a unique case study from David Dean. He's developed a unique way of keeping in contact with his network this year. You know, humour has been a major part of my life. I always like to see the funny side of life. And, you know, when I'm making friends, there's always a gag somewhere along the line. And you're meeting people and keeping contact with them, even if you've got no, there's no business involved, you're social. But just keep that contact going. That's important. And now, I modestly, I'd say I can reach anybody in world football, if not in one phone call, maximum two. I will get anybody in the world in football within two phone calls. So David started something he calls a joke factory. 
on WhatsApp. I'll let him explain. I've got several hundred people on my list from around the world, Jimmy, that I sent a joke a day out to them. And I'm getting them backwards and forwards. So people send me gags. I then have to go through a sifting process. I'm like the censor. I'll check which one do I find amusing. And then I'll send it out around the world. And then people communicate. They say, funny, that's funny. That wasn't funny. Well, I enjoyed that. So that's kept me in touch, believe it or not. I believe it, David. I'm on it. It's really funny, and I love the Daily Dose. And as he says... You know, subliminally, I'm talking to them every day. I'm actually physically not talking, but they're getting a communication from me. So my name pops up on their radar screen every day. That's a masterful way of keeping in with your network. Nothing Machiavellian. Nothing too imposing. Nothing asked for in return. And everyone can do it. For me, well, one of my passions is human performance. How individuals and teams get better. It's why we set up the Leaders Performance Institute some eight years ago. And now, every month or so, I get a small number of the very best coaches in the world together to share challenges, to explore ideas, and to connect. And with one thing in mind, to get better. Like David and his joke factory, I love it. It's built some close bonds, some incredible insight, and made me a better person. And what could be better than that? Be authentic and kind. Rule number four is be real, be kind. This is about being helpful, not asking for help. Being nice, not needy. Grateful, not entitled. Real, not fake. All rolled into one. And it's not a happy, clappy view of the world. It's proven to be good for you and your business. As recently as August this year, a 14-year study by researchers at the University of California found disagreeable personalities, you know, people who are combative, selfish, manipulative, not only do serious damage to a business, think toxic environment, corrupt culture, failing organisations, but also don't gain any advantage over those who are kind. In fact, Professor Cameron Anderson, the lead author, goes on to say, agreeable people in power produce better outcomes. Look, nobody's perfect, everyone has flaws, but everyone has a good side too, and to build a network, you've got to work with that side of you. Being authentic is a philosophy that Scott O'Neill sticks to, even in the more tactical aspects of his job. It was uppermost in his mind when signing StubHub as a patch sponsor for the 76ers in May 2016. I was living in New Canaan, Connecticut, and I was working for Madison Square Garden, and um, Scott Cutler was a, a friend. I mean, I just met him. Invited his uh, his family. He's got a large family. Invited him down for a, a New York Knicks game. You know, set the kids up with hats and T-shirts and did all the fun stuff. Walking them on the court after the game and got a photo. And, and uh, Scott was a big executive at the New York Stock Exchange at the time. And he ended up going on to run StubHub and ended up being our jersey patch sponsor uh, for the 76ers. And his uh, dear friend, you know, I have vacation with his family now. So it's a, a small example. We, we were connected just because we went to the same church. We formed some sort of bond going to a game and then some with his family and connecting. And that leads to him. He's now running StockX, the, the biggest uh, sneaker exchange in the world. It's just incredible, incredible executive, incredible guy. Um, but that's a, a small example of how things seem to evolve. And I, I don't mean to sound Machiavellian because I didn't take him to a, any of his family to a game to do a deal with him. Um, I took him to a game to connect with him. 
and connect with his kids. And I, I think, and that sometimes leads to it, you know, and I, I think the, the older you get and, and the more connected you are around the world, the easier deals become. And sometimes they happen naturally. And, and look, if StubHub didn't want to launch a primary, you know, combine the primary secondary exchanges, that deal never happens, you know, but it happened to be the right time, the right place with the right person that I happen to have a strong relationship with. Authentic relationships allow an easier transition from the formality of the boardroom where bureaucracy can be stodgy to the personal setting of a shared dining table. Tracy Crouch. The thing that used to sort of drive my civil servants mad is that I would always end up with the mobile phone number of you know the chief executive or the head press officer or whatever and and quite often just have conversations with them beyond the department's walls where you're a bit more controlled and you know we'll come back and say oh I've had breakfast with so-and-so and we've decided xyz and you sort of kind of see civil servants thinking oh gosh I remember having a conversation with Richard Scudamore about investment in grassroots uh, football and it's always really controversial it's been a controversial point from as long as I can remember about how much money the Premier League gives to grassroots and I have never been a subscriber to the view that we should uh, siphon off a certain percentage of money from the broadcasting rights into grassroots and the reason why I have not been a, a subscriber to that theory is that the broadcasting rights money will change it will go up and it will go down and if you've got a set percentage then you will you could end up having a decrease in the investment in in grassroots sport so I had always been of a view that there should be a set figure and that should be the set figure going on forever and at the time I was sports minister that figure was around about 52 million pound a year that they were investing in grassroots sport and that was clearly not enough given the size of the UK broadcasting rights uh, that the Premier League had successfully secured and I you know I had had conversations in an official capacity with Richard he had his people around him I had my people around him and we weren't really going anywhere and then we had breakfast and it was just a sort of kind of an, a stakeholder improvement breakfast. There were no civil servants. There were no team. And at the end of the breakfast, I persuaded Richard to go back to the Premier League and uh, the Premier League clubs and put a proposal to double the amount to 100 million. Now, that was a negotiation because actually I wanted 150 million and we ended up in the middle. And that came out over a breakfast conversation and it was a really useful relaxed environment but you know sometimes authenticity isn't just about cozy breakfasts or cocktails it's about delivery reliability and reputation especially now if relationships or the way you've built relationships are only over a meal or only over a cocktail that is harder in this period of time but i've always felt relationships are built via trust and delivery um, and the authenticity. And you can still achieve that in a virtual world. But don't kid yourself. I'll look forward to the day where we can have a, a meal and a glass of wine. But um, I just don't know when that'll be. And sometimes authenticity means just being kind, showing compassion, being you, but being you generously. I oftentimes, when someone loses their job, um, having that, had that experience before in my past, I always reach out to them. And I'll reach out with a note. And my note effectively says, Hey, heard things didn't go your way. I've had this experience before. I learned a lot. If you're ever interested in some of the insights that I had with my time on the beach, I'd love to share them with you. Let me know. And 
every single time the person's taken me up. And I think that's something that kind of keeps me connected to people. There's an old saying, never look down on somebody unless you're prepared to give them a hand up. Anybody who says they've done everything right in their lives is not telling you the truth. Everybody, everybody, and the most successful person has had reversals. At some stage, no matter how successful you've been, Jimmy, if I was to ask you, have you had a reversal in your life? Yes, you have. And if you've only had one, you've been, you're doing very well. Most people have several in their lives, but it's, it's the old Fred Astaire. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself down, and start over again. Never be frightened, you know, you, you get knocked down, you've got it's how you get up and, and also being kind to people, be nice to people, it, you get repaid for that. And, you know, trying to be generous to people, helping people, no matter what walk of life they're in. I've always been of a view that you shouldn't sort of kind of dismiss people that, you know, would technically be kind of lower down or not as high up at the pecking order of what people perceive MPs to be. And actually, there is a whole ecosystem behind the MP that supports them. And and it extends even further in, in Westminster in Parliament. I've always treated the security guards and the postman and, and everybody else, you know, much and the catering staff, you know, I, I treat them with absolute respect because they are the people who make Parliament run. I always give the postman a Christmas present and the security guards a tin of sweets because actually they're the ones that keep Parliament going and running. Um, and I think it's really stupid to sort of kind of overlook the role that they play. So turn the traditional view of networking on its head, claim that work back, harness your best self, think what you can give and give with compassion. Okay, time for some more quick-fire networking tips. Where were we? Oh yes, number four. Number four is call five people. Not random people, although that's better than not calling at all, but not people you know either. Try someone you don't know who is probably going through the same as you right now, especially when starting out in your career. Scott O'Neill does a much better job than I ever could explaining this one. I try to get to each of the, the classes of sales reps that come in. And along with I, the keys to success that I think are, are pretty simple here, I always tell them like, call five sales reps around the country, pick a sport, pick a team, and pick up the phone and call. And just call the sales line. And I said, because you'll make a connection and that'll be a lifelong connection. And whether that person stays in sports for their career or not, you now have a friend in Seattle. You now have a friend in LA. You now have a friend in Chicago. You now have a friend in Atlanta. And as you come up through the business, you're gonna help each other. Number five, be true to your word. Do what you say. It's like a magnet when you do what you say. When people can rely on your word, people just gravitate to you. Word gets out, it makes life easier, and your network becomes stronger. Kathy explains. It starts with simple stuff. Like if you tell somebody you're going to get them something, get it to them on time. I mean, it's as dumb and as simple as that. Show up on time. Be respectful of their time. Like it's really simple stuff. I mean, that starts to build a relationship. Building trust is actually, for me, it's about delivering. If I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I'm probably not 100% on that, but I'd say I'm definitely closer to 100 than I am closer to zero. And so people can depend on me, or at least I think they can. And I think that's how I've been able to, to create relationships. And I, I tell truth, I tell the truth. If you ask me a question, I'm gonna tell you the truth. Number six, approach people in the right way. Do your research, think about why, what's in it for them, how can you add value? What's the connection? 
and how you can help with the challenge they have. Answering these questions before you write that email will massively increase your chances of success in getting a reply. Again, Scott puts it better. Think of what is our most precious resource, I'll tell you mine, is time. And so if somebody says, hey, I want to call and network, I'm like, no thanks, I'll push it to somebody. Hey, I want to call and find out what your thoughts are in the industry, not for me. Hey, I want to talk to you, I have a really interesting idea on how you could transform your business, I'm interested. Hey, there are three deals I think would be transformative to the New Jersey Devils. I'm interested. Hey, I want to revolutionize the way that fans enter a building after COVID. I'm interested. Number seven, don't do room service. You'll never bond sitting behind a desk, sending out an email, calling over Zoom or eating alone in your hotel room. You have to get out there. You have to be proactive. You have to make an effort in person, face to face. So buy some quality time, plan it, schedule it, make it breakfast, lunch or dinner, or do it like we do by getting more than one person together. Time with people is time well spent if you want to build your network. Eight, use a system. It could be digital, it could be paper, but it needs to be orderly. It needs to prioritize your key people and needs to schedule your time because you don't have time to be connected to everyone so you need to focus on the people that matter to you. Number nine, ask how you can help. Every time you meet someone, every time you talk to someone, ask, how can I help? Those four words will open up a world of opportunity, a way of connecting that no other words can do. And finally, number 10, don't be a jerk. I don't need to explain this one. We all know when we see one, We all know when we've been one, and it doesn't get us anywhere. And yes, that does mean you should never follow someone into the restrooms. Put in the work. Rule number five is put in the work. Yes, in your job, that goes without saying, but also on your network. As Herminia Ibarra, Professor of Organisational Behaviour at the London Business School summarised in her research, leaders must accept Networking is one of the most important requirements of their role and allocate enough time and effort to see it pay off. You learn from your mistakes, you get better at building rapport and you feel more comfortable in new conversations, in new situations with new people. You find out who you can work with and who you like. Try it and before you know it, it will start to feel natural. Do you think Scott O'Neill was born with an ability to connect? No, he works at it all the time, so it just looks effortless. I still remember Scott to this very day, introducing himself to every exhibitor at the very first leaders event back in 2008 at Chelsea FC. Keen to learn, keen to connect. He was the president of Madison Square Gardens at the time. So intrigued, I asked him, what does it feel like when everything is clicking? If I'm at the top of my game, I'm smiling and I'm happy. I'm definitely connecting with people. Uh, I'm on the move and traveling. You know, they're good centers of business, you know, in the sports business. So New York is a center of business. Chicago, LA, San Francisco, Dallas are some of the key centers. You know, when I get into a city, one of the things I like to do is is set up a dinner or two. You've been at a couple of these (laughs) and you've thrown a couple of these. And I like to bring people together from different points in my life. In fact, I remember... When I moved back to Philadelphia to work for the Philadelphia Eagles of the NFL, 
I uh, called my roommate and said I needed a place. My roommate from college, I went to Villanova, which is based outside of Philadelphia. And I called my roommate and he was living with my brother, Sean, my older brother, Sean's roommate from Holy Cross, which is up in Massachusetts. And my brother, Michael's roommate from college, who went to the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. And then my roommate from Villanova. And so it just kind of shows you that's what I am and do. It's one of those stories that I kind of laughed that they were all living together. And, and they were living together because we connected them. My brothers and I connected them somehow along the way. And I ended up living with that. But it just is what I have been and grow up to be. I like putting people together. And so if I'm at my best and I'm in L.A., I'm calling people from CAA and I'm calling people from WME and I'm calling people from maybe the music business or Disney and maybe some people from kind of a general real estate business and some friends um, that might be in town for that day or some friends from business school. And I'm just having dinner and connecting them with each other. And that's one of my true joys. People think that networking is about you. I think that networking is an opportunity to connect others and help others. And, um, and I think that's the way I see the world and the way I walk through it. And I love people. I'm interested. You know, if I were advising a 23-year-old or a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old, I would say, be interested. You know, be less interesting. Be more interested. Like people have incredible stories to tell. And if you walk into these conversations, palms up, ready to learn, ready to listen, you're going to walk out a lot smarter and you're going to have these incredible insights and you're going to have a connection with this person that you'll have forever. And I, I think that's pretty important and pretty special. Now, if you do this and work hard, it becomes a force multiplier on something key to your success, your reputation. That's when people pick up the phone to you rather than the other way around. And as David Dean explains, that hard-won reputation is worth protecting. So the hard work never ends, whatever people are calling you about. You know, you have to build up your own reputation. It doesn't come naturally. It's not just because I have to be David Dean at Arsenal. I've got to be seen to add value to a board. You might get respect from being part of a group or keeping some kind of company. But if you earn it, you rarely lose it. The interesting thing about having to earn respect versus having it be given is if you've earned respect, it doesn't go away. If you've been given respect, they can take it away. And maybe I'm, I'm Pollyannish about it or the glass is always half full for me, but I tend to look at it at the time. It's harder. It's more work. You know, you've got to spend a lot more effort. But boy, when, when you get there and somebody believes in you, they'll go through hot coals to help you. You have to play with what you have. And so you, you, I didn't ever think about it that I was a minority. In fact, I still don't think that. Do I think I had to work harder? Without question. I had to work three times as hard to deliver the result that others might have had a much easier or shorter time. Did I have to earn respect every time I walked in a room? Absolutely. There was, I never once walked in a room in, a, in my early years and somebody just naturally thought, that I knew what I was talking about. And, and at the beginning, that probably irritated me. And then I quickly realized that that was actually a, a tremendous benefit because when people are really paying attention and wanting to see if you're going to screw up, they're actually listening. And that's hard. It's hard to get people to listen to you in business. And so I realized that that was this unintended consequence of being a woman in, in a male-dominated business. People paid attention to me because they thought I'd screw up. So they, maybe they listened a little bit more. There's been many a time when a senior leader 
has politely declined an invitation to a leaders event, only to call me out the blue years down the line in a rush to take part. It usually means an announcement is coming on their future role that leaves them reliant on their network for the next one. But by then it's too late. They're in a networking slump. They haven't put in the work. And I mean, it's pretty obvious, really. The very word work is at the center of networking. Play the long game. Rule number six is play the long game. Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, is all over this one. Forget the bottom trade, he says, for all you want is an immediate return. Or the, I'll do something for you if you do something for me, where it's all conditional. Play the long game. Relationships of the past are the key to opening a window of opportunity to the future. And David Dean is a classic example. First of all, fostering that family feeling when he joined Arsenal. Building friendships with other club directors. And then with directors of other clubs. And finally, becoming the chief architect of the Premier League. It evolved over two or three years, really, the Premier League. And I think we've got to turn the clock back to the 1980s. And Jimmy, we were we were around in those days. So you'll remember that football in the 80s was not pleasant, that there was hooliganism, that the facilities in the stadium themselves were dilapidated. The game itself was not that particularly attractive. It was totally male-based, by the way. I mean, you hardly saw any women and very few children going to the games. So it was a totally male-dominated game in the 80s. But of course, we, once we had hooliganism and then, well, mothers didn't want their children to go to games. They were scared about their safety. Uh, tendencies were dropping like a stone. Television, you know, we spoke about TV before. It's difficult to believe. But TV pulled the plug on television for six months in the 1980s. They didn't want to be associated with the product. So something had to change. And tragically, it changed for the worst. You know, there was disasters, Heisel, and then, of course, Hillsborough. Hillsborough was really the catalyst, in my view, in 1989. When Hillsborough happened and 96 people lost their lives, that was a huge, huge wake-up call for football. And for me, being administrator, I was in the Football League Management Committee. And I'll, I'll never forget the time when I think, I well up when I think about this. I actually, my, my daughter was at a school in North London called Haberdashers. And she came back to me after the, the, the day after, the, or the Monday after Hillsborough and said, Daddy, two of the girls who perished went to my school. And I and I was at the I was in the football league management committee and I made it my business to actually go and visit the parents. And I went to see I remember Trevor Hicks. He, he was actually the leader of the of Justice for the '96 campaign. And I went to see him at his home. He told me the story of um, of what happened and then going on going out onto the pitch and seeing the perimeter boards with bodies on them with blankets on top and he had to uncover the blanket and hoping and praying it wasn't his one of his daughters and sadly two of them were and even now when I think about that you know it is so and I thought to myself football can't be about this it's got to change and that was a huge huge wake-up call we obviously had the Lord Justice Taylor report which made clubs go all seater which cost clubs a lot of money which they didn't have and the politics in football were difficult at the time. There was virtually one vote for each club. So the big clubs, the more glamorous clubs got outvoted. There was only one substitute. And I, I remember proposing there should be two substitutes. 
they got outvoted. Somebody said, you can't have that. It's an extra bonus. It's an extra hotel room. What? But, you know, this is a game at stake. So there was a lot of things wrong with football at the time, and it needed, it needed a fresh start. And that's when sort of, I guess, I was the main architect and called the other. We used to call ourselves the Big Five, or we were called the Big Five, you know, with Arsenal, Spurs, Manchester United, Everton and Liverpool. We were friends, the five of us. became even closer friends, very sadly. Two of our founder members are no longer, so Phil Carter and Noel White are no longer alive anymore. So there's only three of us left. But still, the three of us, Martin Edwards from Manchester United, Irving Scholar of Spurs and myself, we speak probably once a week, every, every couple of weeks. We're buddies. That was a huge bonding for us then. We needed to change football. And we did. All the odds were stacked against us because there were 92 clubs. There was only five of us. So there was 87. We had, we had to convince, firstly, the rest of the old first division. There were 22 clubs in the old first division. And there was only five of us. So we had a big job to convince, you know, at least another seven to join us because we had to get 12 effectively on side to start with to have a chance of getting a league together. Five couldn't have a league by itself because we can't just play each other all the time. It's a nonsense. So that was a major, major operation to get the Premier League going. And, you know, in 1992, we did. And we got Rick Parry was the first as you know, the first CEO, they did a really good job. And the latterly, obviously, with Richard Scudamore, now Richard Masters taking over. But nobody could have believed how the Premier League has developed. They say, out of, out of small acorns, mighty oaks do grow. What we did, we had one famous meeting where the five of us, we said, well, let's start. Who do each club know best? So we decided to choose a dancing partner. I think mine at the time was West Ham and... I don't know, Irving's maybe Newcastle or then somebody else at Aston Villa. So if we felt we could get 10 on board, we could probably actually have a league of 10. But once we got 10, we felt the other 12 would capitulate. So we had another wave. It was a huge manoeuvre to get the other. Once we got the other five on side, then we had 10 like-minded souls and we virtually signed up. We were going to resign from the old football league. We, we were going to change football forever. And once we had the 10, then the rest capitulated and we knew that they would come inside. Kathy Carter realised the power of the long game when she went through trying times. She built her network over many years. I've always had really, really good relationships with the people who I've worked for and actually continue good relationships with the people who I've worked with, meaning either laterally or, or who have worked in my groups. But, um, and I actually think that, uh, you know, whether it be, I mentioned Randy Bernstein, you know, I uh, maintain a relationship with Alan Rothenberg, Don and Garber and I still are very, very close. Gary Stevenson, who came in, Doug Quinn, who spent a period of time. So those are, I mean, each and every one of those folks are people who continued to shape me while I worked with them. And ultimately, even today, I depend on as, as strategic counsel. And although Cathy had soccer running through her veins, she made sure she built alliances across the sports industry with women who shared the same challenges she faced in a male-dominated industry. There's a really good group of women, in, in, certainly in the United States, who have really done incredible things, and, and they're all one click away, so to speak. I'm not sure that light bulb went off until you go through trying times, and those people are willing to stick by you. Which again, I, I come back, I go back to sport when you realize you lose a game and you were the one that make, made the mistake for the game to be lost and your teammates are still there for you. And, and I think that is the same thing I have felt 
as I've built relationships. And, you know, I still am in touch with the the girls that I played on some of the more meaningful teams that I grew up with. And similarly, that's sort of the same feeling I have in business and with people that I've gone through this journey with. The beauty of the long game is that people get closer, become more honest, and you get better. And if you plan ahead, you can build multiple networks over the course of time, as Scott O'Neill has done. What happens in your career when you're young is you have you know people that mentor you and, and teach you and coach you. And then if, you're, if your career goes on a run, a big run, then you sometimes hop over your mentors in terms of what they can provide you then sometimes provide to them. And so there, there is an organization called YPO, the Young Presidents Organization. It's a global organization of presidents and CEOs that's been extremely helpful. And I have a, a forum, it's called, of, of eight friends now, and they run companies in different fields and industries. And we get together once a month for four hours and we talk about life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. And so most major decisions that I've made over the last 10 years have been run through this group. And, you know, it's completely confidential. So nothing leaves the room. They know me inside and out. They know my wife, my kids, my fears, my hopes, my dreams, my nightmares. They know how I think. And, you know, and and you can talk to them about things like negotiating a contract or compensation or structuring a deal, working with a friend or family issue. You know, there, there's not many instances in life where you have those types of resources at your disposal. And, and that's been a, been a huge source for me. Um, of course, I have friends, um, some of whom I've, I've mentioned, who I tap into. My brothers are all successful executives. Um, so I touch base with them and they've, they've given me, you know, oh, the ones you love will give it to you straight. That's hard to get. You know, so you really have to be around people that that love, like, and respect you enough to tell you when you're making a mistake, or when you're going off course, or when something is awry or doesn't feel right. And so I, I've, I've surrounded myself with with people that that give it to me, including my wife, that give it to me straight and tell me because uh, I don't think without that feedback you can ever get better, get stronger, and move ahead. And so the longer time passes, the more you get connected the more you exchange and the greater the value. You know, as you start to help each other, you wake up when you're my age, I'm 50 years old, and I I have friends all over the world doing really big things, running really big companies, some in sports and some not. Uh, But it makes business a lot simpler and easier. Looking back when I first broke into sport, I was definitely a trader. I was always thinking what I could give, but also what I could get. But I soon realized the error of my ways, and I started to pass the ball around and get it back. I got better at reading the game, anticipating the people around me, and felt the same in return. And now every year the bonds I've got get stronger, the conversation's easier, the trust greater, and you develop a team of invincibles when you play the long game. So there you have it, my audio guide to networking in sport, why it works, what you gain, the rules of the game, and some top tips. On this journey, I've learned an awful lot from all the guests and every person I've connected with, especially in the middle of this pandemic. I've learned networking isn't just a skill, it's a way of life. It's driven by service, it's rooted in compassion, and it's aligned to your passion. It makes people richer, it makes your world more interesting, and you more connected on a deeper level. And although I've come to realise plenty don't love it, By shifting your mindset, exploring shared interests, 
expanding your view and what you have to offer, you'll become more excited about it and more effective at it and therefore more successful. And this industry we all love will be better for it. Thanks to all my guests, Kathy Carter, Tracy Crouch, David Dean and Scott O'Neill. A special thanks to James Emmett, our editor-at-large, for his invaluable support in producing this podcast, and Danny Garlick for his production and editing support. 